Lenny just had dinner. It was bangers and mash. That's very English, isn't it? That is extremely. I mean, you tell me, but that seems English to me. Mm. That's if you go to a if you go to a British pub in the United States, British style pub. That that's the thing you're sure is going to be on the menu. That and fish and chips. And if you get a good one, you have Scotch egg on there. They are good. Have you had them? No, they're just terrifying. <laughs> Why are they terrifying? Because it, it seems like you're just, just like... going to get sick eating that. I don't know. No, they were right. But they're like, those are all my favorite foods, actually. It's bangers and mash, fish and chips, and scotch eggs, pretty mm-hmm. much. <laughs> this is why you're a good standard bearer for, for uh, <laughs> British culture for me. So you can just represent it. And you live in a castle with a drawbridge. Uh, here it's all like we have pie and pea nights. Have you ever heard of those? No. It's where people get together and have pies and peas. People in the neighborhood? Yeah. Is it? A, <laughs> is there a tradition around it? Yeah, it's mostly it's mostly in the north. It's more north than here, like where my mum and dad live in the Lake District. You get it there, pie and pea suppers. Hmm. You like go to the town hall and have pie and pea and play cards, maybe. Hmm. There's a similar thing in New Orleans mm-hmm. with uh, red beans and rice. Mm. Uh, every I think it's Friday, <laughs> or maybe it was Monday. <laughs> Crucial bit of knowledge there. What if I showed up on the wrong day? <laughs> you could still probably order it. I don't think they're, they don't keep them under lock and key for the rest of the week. It's just only one day where it's traditional to order it. I know, but I look like a right tourist, wouldn't I? You would look like a what? Right tourist if I had it on the wrong day. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to look like a tourist. People might be able to guess from your accent, though. <laughs> I could ask for it in an American accent. <laughs> <laughs> What's it called again? Red beans and rice? Red beans and rice? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. Now I want you to... Will you do an intro for me in an American accent? (laughs) Please? Please, will you? It's really hard. (laughs) No. Just say this is in the cut, episode number 20. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, not a chance. Can't. No, no deal. No deal. It can't be done. All right. This is In The Cut, episode number 20. I always like breaking the format of the show, so as we hit number 20 and before we put season 1 in the can and take a little summer vacation here, I thought it'd be fun to do something a little different again. 20 episodes doesn't seem like a hell of a lot, but it it really has been a journey for me. So, while usually for an episode, me and one or two other guys sit down and watch a particular movie and then talk about it, this time we didn't pick a movie. Instead, I reached out to each person who's appeared on the show with me, Laura, who you of course just heard, uh, Nunk, Josh, Aaron, John, and asked them if they wouldn't mind picking their own topic and having a chat with me about it. Then I figured I'd just smash them all together into one big, ridiculous, omni-episode. And I love how everybody surprised me in a different way. Uh, Nunk called in from a fishing boat in Alaska to talk about our personal uh, evolutions from young men watching thought-provoking and art film on old VHS tapes 
into 30 whatever dudes watching Total Garbage on Netflix. Aaron called from his mom's house, who he's visiting, to discuss how he realized he hates Batman. Yes, uh, I know, but hear him out. And Josh came over to my place, and we had some drinks and chatted about the particular way that uh, horror franchises seem to collapse under the weight of their sequels, and whether anything can really be done about that. And John Skyped in to uh, kind of blindside me with a whole series of questions about planning and making the show, uh, this show, this podcast that you're listening to, and ultimately a tiny bit about the nature of criticism itself. I've also scraped together a couple little clips that got cut from earlier episodes, just kind of garbage off the cutting room floor, which I'll be peppering in here and there. Thank you to all the guys for taking the time to do this. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks also to Ethan, Gordy, Tom, and CK for all the music I'm using as interstitials on this episode. Uh, these are all snippets from their album, Gravity Wins Again, their band X's for Eyes, and you'll find a link at inthecut.org. All right, let's get on with this mess. This is part one of two. <laughs> There you go. <laughs> we're, on the, we're on the podcast right now. Did you guys know that? What are you drinking, Aaron? I was drinking um, white dog whiskey of the man who shot my dog. Right. Now I'm drinking something else, and before that I was drinking another thing. I've been drinking for quite a while now. Regular listeners will remember the man who shot her dog. <laughs> He's kind of a recurring character. I think we can get the sponsorship still. Let's do this before I yeah. grade too much. All right. All right. So I'm I don't, really I don't, enjoying this Manhattan. <laughs> There's more where that came from. I don't really have an intro for these. I just, uh, we could probably just hit the ground running. Um, yeah, how Josh Millard has been, yeah. has been on a couple shows so far, the Brain Scan episode and the Willow episode, and I invited him here to uh, talk about whatever topic he chose. So we've been recording this whole time. I ju- well... You have to destroy the... <laughs> It's such a good move because, like, honestly, you've got me—you've got me sort of, you know, lubed up, so to speak. Yeah, literally lubed up. It's not um, a video podcast. Yeah, so. no. Uh, when we do the Hellraiser podcast, we're still not used to starting. Mm-hmm. So every time we're like, uh, "Hey, how are you doing?" I'm, I'm, I'm okay. Uh, uh, okay, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna launch into it, and then we like harump for like thirty seconds yeah. while I try and launch into it, and then I finally launch. So. No, no, this is a, this is a good policy. No, it's, I Which I'm destroying like... by talking about it for like two <laughs> fucking minutes. It's when they say, when you're shooting a... Um, this is an old uh, cinematography trick. Is if you're shooting a pan or something, you start like way... Or you just hit record way early and then you stop recording way late. And then you can... You get consistent movement through the part of the shot that you yeah. actually end up keeping in the edit. I just, and I figure we can apply the same principle to editing. Yeah, we can just I can just hit record and we can just talk terrible, useless. Exactly, stuff, you can pick any start point you where, want. You know, right? I, I discovered that panning thing by failure to implement it mm. uh, when I shot a, a Super Eight film many mm-hmm. years ago, <laughs> and I well, you know. It was expensive, and I was poor at the time, and uh, so like you know, a, a, a reel of film cost you thirty bucks, right? But developing it cost you like another thirty bucks because <laughs> you had to send it to one place in Kansas that would do it. <laughs> so, and you got like three minutes and twenty seconds, like at a stretch on a Super Eight canister, 
and I was shooting like a five minute film on two and it was split between black and white and color and mm. I had a 130 scene well scene 130 edit cut you know several scenes were multiple edits sure 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 but you know, I was cutting shot. yeah yeah so yeah. I was cutting between black and white and color frequently and I uh, and that was all planned out which would be yeah shown, which I had I had like 130 pages of shooting script that oh, was like wow. a, a, oh, it was it was amazing how much effort I put into it compared to what I got out of it but <laughs> I, I'll show you just a <laughs> I know the feeling <laughs> yeah but uh, but yeah that I, I was like so I couldn't waste significant amounts of film like I could throw a second of extra camera yeah. roll on it and I lost some shots that I thought were integral because I didn't get them because I pushed it so hard and, mm-hmm. and yeah it's kind of rough so I didn't know that you had gotten into that it's um, just briefly I'll show so you editing the Super 8 means like actually using film cutters and specifically oh, yeah. splicing yeah. yeah yeah it was I was underemployed at the time uh, so I did a bunch of editing for about a week like before or after a shift in our little one bedroom apartment downtown during uh. the summer when it's super fucking hot and it was I I wish I had photo- photographs of this because I had like strips of Super 8 taped to the window in our bedroom and I was working on a drafting table with a little splicing machine and I had tape and a uh. little oh, it, was, it was kind of amazing in a terrible way it's so romantic to me it is vision. it was yeah. it was like the, like the, that was my romantic cinematography <laughs> thing but it was also like a terrible idea um, and I, I could do it so much better now on digital. <laughs> it's like I could like shoot 15 minutes of film for a five minute film instead of like five minutes and 30 seconds of film <laughs> right. for a five minute film. Yeah, I'm kind of excited about the idea of ever shooting another movie, like even just a dumb little short film and shooting it on digital. And yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> Running camera before, right. cutting well after the action, <laughs> and having that to fucking work with. Because I made a. Kickstarter video for a friend mm-hmm. that was like a dumb little Kickstarter video based on some live performance and an interview with them and that came out so much better <laughs> despite being like completely fucking unscripted because it's like I could just I could shoot three hours of video and then get five minutes out of it it's like oh so things, yeah so, like is anyone over like 40 right now it's trying to get them like if you hand someone a camera and you're like Take 20 pictures, you know, like, hey, will you take a picture of me and my girlfriend? Just take a bunch. They take, like, two, and you're like, just take a bunch. <laughs> like, you're really not wasting anything. Take 50 of them really quick. Exactly, it doesn't even yeah. fucking matter. It's my matter. camera. You like, don't even have to sort through it. Yeah, just shoot. Right. Shoot but like it's just crazy. every Like, there was still is this, like, residual sense of, like, the inherent value of the picture. You know, you have to get it right or whatever. Yeah. It's like, just take 100. I mean, one of them will be better well, and the, than and the, the first is, I mean, one you took. There, there's, there's the value... Uh, uh, not to like you know get into your shit or anything, but this is sort of where I'm coming with the idea of like you know the value of just getting it in the take versus getting it in the edit. There, sure. There's definitely there's significant value in getting it in the take, like mm-hmm. there, there's or, or in the shot. You know, if we're talking video versus music, and I'm I'm more conversant with uh, the music side of things because I've done a lot of recording over mm-hmm. the years. Um, I was really excited about digital recording when I realized that was because ba- I started there. Like I, I never really. I only worked on analog in the sense that when I first started writing music and first started recording music at home in high school, uh, I bought two tape decks at a garage sale when I was like 17, and I I would bounce from one to the other. So I'd record a track on the first one, and then run the out from that into the in on the other one, and I would hit record on the second one, and I'd play my audio in from the first recording, and then I'd do my live performances, mm-hmm. and I'd play some guitar or sing or, or do both. It taught me, to some extent... 
because I went to digital after that and I got like some digital audio workstation software for cheap or free somewhere and it was so liberating because I could just like I could take after take after take I didn't right. have to get it right and it spoiled me for a while because it's like yeah no I'll just do I'll do a billion fucking takes and then I realized I don't want to do a billion fucking takes I want to do like two takes I want to say yeah the second take was better I'll keep that one right you know and I realized that like being able to do a billion fucking takes or being able to edit the shit out of it afterwards was nice in a sort of flexibility sense but it was mm -hmm. so fucking terrible because I would be like I would then spend 10 hours editing a five minute performance mm. instead of like spending a couple hours really working on that five minute performance and then just so it actually stuff. affected the caliber of the performance you think? yeah it made okay. me lazy it made me it okay. made me say hey well you know what I can just edit this later what you wanted to talk about was uh, evolution within a franchise, a horror franchise. But yes. you didn't specifically when you when you threw the topic out, you didn't specifically mention Hellraiser. I can't help but imagine this is a, a roundabout way of plugging your podcast. See, you know, yet you again. were being so fucking supportive like a half an hour ago about this idea, and now you're making me look like exactly the bad guy I felt like in the first place. Well, you know what it is is honestly. This is a conversation that ideally we'd be having a year from now after we've gone into some other franchises because I'm excited about the idea mm -hmm. of this as a general thesis on horror franchises and I can back it up a little bit from my uh, childhood viewing of pieces of various franchises because I've seen a lot of the Friday the 13th movies. I've seen a lot of the Nightmare on Elm Street movies but it's been a while for both of them and I saw them you know, as like a middle schooler and a high schooler. Mm -hmm. I haven't really reviewed them but my, my hypothesis is that there is a general shape of sort of ossification through uh, restatement of tropes and themes in a horror franchise as it ages, and a kind of decay and drift in central characters. Because when we think of a horror franchise, we think of usually the titular character, or if not the titular character, at least the implied titular... Because really... Uh, there's no character named Friday the 13th in right. those movies. There's no character named Nightmare Elm Street. Right, and the, sh the shark in Jaws isn't named Jaws. Everyone just calls it Jaws. A a exactly. You know, uh, well, unless maybe, maybe it's named Jaws. Maybe that's what the shark no, calls it. Hey, Steve. Jaws, how you doing? Don't you know this bit of movie trivia? What's his name? Does he have a name? Yeah, Steven Spielberg named him after his lawyer. Yeah, but but it's not in the film. <laughs> no, not in the film. So it doesn't count. It's, okay. not, it's not diegetic. It doesn't count. It has to be said or implied directly in the film. So, uh, so yes. Uh, Friday the Thirteenth is really Jason Voorhees, right? Although in the first film, it's right, the not. Adventures of Jason Voorhees. That's the interesting right. thing. Is like, yeah, I don't know how well we remember the. Oh the no, I remember this. Okay, yeah. yeah, it's really Jason's mom mm -hmm. is the antagonist of the first film, and he mm -hmm. only shows up at the very end as like a swamp monster. Right. Spoiler alert for Friday yeah. the Thirteenth. Yeah, if you haven't seen one. a film from like nineteen eighty, <laughs> fuck you. Um, I mean, spoiler alert. That's that's what I mean when I say fuck you. Nightmare on Elm Street, of course, Freddy Krueger. Right, right. Uh, Hellraiser, of course, Pinhead. And, mm -hmm. and it's kind of a funny thing that I've noticed is I've sort of looked into, like, Hellraiser fandom a little bit. It's like, people who really don't know anything about Hellraiser really think that Pinhead's name is Hellraiser. Because, mm. like, why wouldn't you? Right. You know? I mean, unlike Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street, it's obviously... It's it's not obviously not a name, I should say. So, right, right. Yeah. But 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 my hypothesis it, is well, and he doesn't have a name in the first Hellraiser. Oh yeah, he doesn't. Right, like, he's lead well, Cenobite. In the original in the original uh, novella by Clive Barker, he was just yeah, he was just a Cenobite, and he had this like girlish adolescent or pre-adolescent <laughs> voice. Like he was Pinhead, but he's like ah, la, la, la. oh, we right. have such sights to show you, you know. 
so that Bradley was a kind of took care of that. Yeah, luckily. Doug Bradley, I think his take is better. Like I appreciate where Clive was going that it was like weird and uncanny and didn't make sense, sure, but sure. Doug Bradley's got a really great delivery. Like Doug Bradley is right, sometimes what works on the page isn't what works on yeah. the screen. Well, it's fine. You know, and yeah. adaptation is a process of adapting, not of, you know, translating right, as faithfully as possible. Sure. So So Hellraiser, I feel like the first film uh, suffered in some ways, technically at least, from Clive Barker not knowing what the fuck he was doing, because it was his first like feature film as a director, and there were problems with it because of that. And it was a low budget film, and it was cast by basically nobodies. You know, there's like, like nobody in that film had a career significantly, like you know, a successful career outside of that film. You know, the people worked. Um, Larry Cotton from that film. Uh, the dad mm-hmm. uh, it was actually Garrick from Deep Space Nine, which I was fucking <laughs> amazed and delighted to discover at some point about five films in when I went back and do some research. But uh, but basically, you know, it's like it was it was a very cheap film. It was made by like it was made by a nobody starring nobodies, mm-hmm. and it was shocking that it was as successful as it was. And that's a really interesting thing about how the franchise developed because Pinhead was just he really was a throwaway character in the original novella. And likewise, in the original film, like he had more speaking parts than the other Cenobites, but not by a lot, and he wasn't in it much. Right, Frank was the real source of the terror. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Uncle Frank was really the, 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 the terribly amoral human trying to dodge his fate who really drove yeah, the, the terror right. of the film. Driving force of all the you know, nightmarish things that happened. And the interesting thing was Julia, a uh, faithful... Doltish Larry's wife, who was secretly in love with Frank, but thought he was gone and lost, and who then collaborated with him to try and bring Frank back from skeletal death. <laughs> uh, she was sort of the plan for the antagonist of this franchise. So in the second film, mm. there's a lot of Julia in the first two thirds of the film. Mm-hmm. But they shot the second film after the first film was a surprise hit. Right. And they started working on it, and then they sort of realized there was some fan energy behind Pinhead. So Pinhead ends up becoming sort of a fixture of the latter half of the second film, and then he's hugely a fixture of the third film, and that just sort of settled him in. as in- So we lost Julia as a potential antagonist, right. and we just sort of went to the will of... This is the momentum of the franchise. And so Pinhead became our Freddy Krueger. He became our Jason Voorhees. Um, And so we got bigger parts in the third film and in the fourth film. The fourth film was all about sort of him and some ancillary Cenobite characters and some human characters. And then after the fourth film, they basically stopped having feature releases. And so they went direct-to-video... And they also stopped having original scripts. So Dimension Films, a division of Miramax that basically made shitty horror movies that, you know, I love them, but they were shitty (laughs) low-budget horror movies that they made very, very mercenarily. Uh, They started making Hellraiser movies because they had, you know, or some subsect of them had the rights to the Hellraiser films, and they had to exercise the option to keep it. So they started making direct-to-video movies based on spec scripts because they didn't want to pay someone to write a script from scratch so they said hey here's a script that we could shoehorn some Hellraiser into right and there's a distinct shift in the films after the fourth film and into the fifth through the eighth films where it's very really apparent to anybody who's watching that there's something different going on here and there's something not as coherent about these films because you can criticize the shit and we have on the (laughs) on the podcast obviously you can criticize the shit out of the first four movies 
Um, and like the third and the fourth in particular. The third one is where they really go off the rails. The fourth one they try and bring back to the mythos, but it's kind of a bad movie despite their attempts to do something oh, interesting with the, the story. I thought the fourth one was underrated. I thought you guys were too hard on the fourth one, I, personally. I, I feel like I was too hard on <laughs> the fourth one going in, and I feel like during the fourth episode I mediated that somewhat by acknowledging some things that worked better than I remembered them from like a year sure. ago when I first watched it. Sure. But, but so aggressively retooled by the time it came out that it was an Alan Smithy film, right? That was the yeah, first one. Yeah, right. well, and that's the thing. And I, still, even spite of that, it surpassed the it, it was still, and in yeah, subsequent It was more interesting. Movie. And the script for the original, the original script for the fourth film was actually actually better than the film, mm-hmm. but whatever, you know, whatever, sure. shit happened. So then they went on to the direct video And the thing is, with a direct video there's such a break from that attempt at a mythos that it's really sort of jarring when you look at it as a whole, when you look at it as a corpus rather than as individual random films without context, Mm -hmm. it's really immediately clear that something has changed and they are no longer writing Hellraiser movies. They're just sort of making movies that have Pinhead in them. Right. And it's a shame because, like, the the mythos, the the theory of the nature of quote-unquote hell in the first few films is really sort of interesting and worth digging into whereas in the later films Pinhead's just sort of like a honcho demon and hell's a place where you go when you're bad Right. and that's I think the biggest shame and that's the biggest thematic drift in the series as a result of the loss of cohesion and the, and the move it becomes commoditized that's maybe, that's maybe the core of my hypothesis is the commoditization of a horror franchise as it becomes something monetizable in its own right you lose the creative interest in the core sort of soul of uh, of the story which <laughs> hellraiser soul huh. but uh i don't get it yeah uh like yeah mm, fuck you um <laughs> the commoditization i guess that that may be a good way to refine my, my hypothesis is the commoditization of a of a horror franchise is the death of a franchise i think as a general rule maybe not as a absolute rule sure but as a general rule, I think as soon as you realize you can sell a Jason movie or a Freddy movie or a Pinhead movie without needing to tell a story about that character, that's where you go awry. And mm-hmm. so I think I think you can contrast the examples of Hellraiser where it really went to shit. It's, it's really, it's been downhill for a long time mm-hmm. now because they keep monetizing the option right. instead of trying to tell a story. Compare that to the Freddy films, which I need to review them sometime, but I feel like there was a little bit more of a narrative thread, and Craven's involvement ongoing in that helped keep it a little bit honest. And then Wes Craven's New Nightmare was a really interesting, if not perfect, horror film that was an attempt to sort of recapitulate and return to the spirit of the story, because that starred the lady who played the last girl in the first Freddy movie, and she had a cameo in the third movie where she got sort of spiritually killed by Freddy in a dream, but how do you... I don't know what that means. So that actress came back to star as that actress in a film that also starred Robert Englund, who played Freddy Krueger, as Robert Englund, the guy who played Freddy Krueger, in a Wes Craven film about the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise. But then it descended into that actress being terrorized by actual Freddy in a Nightmare on Elm Street-ish so it was, it was really that's a really interesting movie to talk about. Yeah, on which, for sure. Which, yeah. I mean, it's 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 the first movie I can. It's the first movie that occurs to me where the previous entries in the in the series exist as movies in the universe. Yeah, so, you yeah. know what? This is weird. 
the sequel to the Blair Witch Project did the same thing. True, true. And I think it made Craven of Death there. We're like, yeah. yeah, the idea of having a entry in a horror franchise be an exegesis on the previous canon of that right. horror franchise, that may be specifically unique to New Nightmare as something that Wes Craven really sort of made work in a way that hadn't done in a at least in a high-profile way before. Right, right. Uh, yeah, and New Nightmare was a popular entry in the series, as I recall. It's It, it got a lot it of people okay. to, to, to come back to the series who had kind yeah. of grown up with it. But I did think. they do anything after the series with that? I mean... They, there was a reboot, I think, was the only thing that's really? happened since then, yeah. Oh, I haven't seen that. i got to check that out. But yeah, no, it's... Uh, yeah. You're right, that, you're right that the... It's, it's a shame the way the Hellraiser series coalesces around Pinhead, and... It's also sort of a shame that he ends up being called Pinhead because it's a dumb name for an interesting character. Well, yeah, it was a fan name. Because like, they're not pins in his head for starters. Yeah. <laughs> they're like heavy, thick nails going yeah, into somebody's they're, they're, skull. They're like, and like, it like, kind of like weirdly trivializes it by calling him Pinhead, although I sort of... Maybe that's kind of part was, of the well, charm. Is it was a fan name. You know, yeah. that's what happened. Is like some somewhere between like film one and film two sort of getting momentum, right. people started calling him Pinhead. Right. And like Fangoria letters to the editor or whatever the fuck. And <laughs> that sort of like, that sort of became the feedback loop back then because it took, right. you know, two years and letters to the editor <laughs> at a print publication for fandom to like coalesce instead of like, you know, two weeks after it right. first got released or aired. But on the Tumblr. way that it coalesces around him and, and, and so the element by the time that's later in the series and what they're doing is taking spec scripts and just inserting the required Hellraiser yeah which know, means the box in, and Pinhead which means the box and Pinhead which is it's it's strange because they were an element of the first film but not necessarily the core most element yeah of the, I guess the box was pretty important but well, but the more, box was more, just like a, more like, like the characters yeah, yeah like Frank and and um What's her name? Not Julie. Kirsty. Kirsty. Kirsty was the. Um, every everybody wants to, everybody wants it to coalesce around this interesting villain, like the same way that obviously Friday the Thirteenth or Nightmare on Elm Street or Halloween, which you didn't mention before. But oh yeah, really yeah, like my hero and uh, Child's Play. Halloween is interesting because like so many fewer people seem to know Mike Myers' name versus Freddy and Jason. And I think it's partly because people didn't really focus on. I don't know. Halloween, I feel like, just wasn't as successful as a franchise as the main thing. Sure. Like, it didn't have quite the same sort of relentless continuity. In a sense, though, it has a higher, like, stature, though, in, in his... Like, people people really reflect on that as a, a real high watermark in, in horror. Like, it's... it's um, Even people who love Friday the 13th or Nightmare on Elm Street really reflect on them as just, like, fun, trashy series. But when you say uh, Halloween, they say, like, oh, yeah, John Carpenter's a master. They really... Yeah. they It really holds, like... Uh, alongside like The Exorcist or something, I think yeah. Halloween holds well, a higher. I think that maybe a. L- I mean, I think that I think that's partly true, and that may partly be because it didn't turn into such a relentless franchise. Like the right. fact that it didn't like bleed out over the series of like you know half a dozen or ten, you know, feature releases. Right. It's easier to say, oh yeah, Halloween was a great film, and uh, there was a couple sequels, and they did the reboot. But you know, right. it's not like Nightmare on the Street was like six, and then New Nightmare. Uh, Jason, they did like ten, right? You know, including a space one, which is a whole right, other, right. Uh, the tenth one was right. the space one, right? Yeah. 
And then Jason and Freddy fought each other. Which I never saw. <laughs> really? I watch it sometime. I, I was kind of... Give it a shot. I was kinda, Why not? I was done at the time when that came out. I was like, oh, Jesus, really? I was busy being too cool for It's shit. less disappointing than Alien vs. Predator. <laughs> Although that one was closer that's, that's, to... Alien vs. Predator was a concept closer to my heart. So yeah, that, that's that why bears discussion sometimes. They're, they're probably both equally embarrassing, yeah. depending on which one you were more married to your fantasy ideal yeah. version of when it's, you were young. Yeah, it's maybe a little bit of a Sega Nintendo thing. Here. But here's another thing about um, the Halloween franchises did something extremely unusual, which is exactly what you're saying Hellraiser wasn't able ever to do, which is it made an entire one that had nothing to do with Mike Myers. See, that's nice. Uh, Halloween Season of the Witch, and it's about a uh, malicious, like, demonic Halloween mask manufacturer who manufactures these masks that... And it's it, it not only has nothing to do with Michael Myers, but it's not even a slasher film. It's like a... It's a I don't even know how to classify it, but it's one of the more interesting horror movies I saw when I was young. In the universe of like ongoing horror series, that's a pretty interesting counterexample of uh, because Pinhead obviously like you have to put him in the movie, not even just because the audience demands it, although they do. You have to put him in the movie because you have to put him on the cover. Because if he's not on the yeah. cover, no one's gonna rent or buy it. Yeah, because like there's all like people who are only vaguely aware. They're vaguely aware of Pinhead. Like right. he's the iconic image, and I understand that. Even if it seems sort of like you know crass the way to handle it, I understand that. Okay, that's how you sell it. You say, oh shit, it's one of them movies with that guy with the pins in his head. Oh right, my god, right. I want to see it. Because <laughs> uh, that's how everybody who watches movies talks. They, they yeah. Say, oh my god, <laughs> it sounds like a, a really bad uh, John Travolta impersonation. Oh my god. The commoditization of a villain, I think, mm. is, is a serious liability for a horror franchise because you end up treating the presence of that villain and their iconoclast, their, their, their iconic, not iconoclastic, the exact opposite <laughs> of that. What iconoclasm is against, the iconic representation of that villain becomes so central to the franchise that you lose flexibility and lose the ability to tell interesting new stories. Yes, I, so like, it's like well, what's interesting about that is that is that is that New Nightmare approaches it with this idea that, uh, yeah, Robert England plays this character that is the movie horror movie star that is adored by fans called Freddy Krueger, but also that if you back if you pull the camera out enough, you, it turns out that it was actually inspired by this like almost supernatural force. And the fact that it existed in the movies was just one like expression of this actual omnipresent, you know, terror in the real world. One thing that that Hellraiser started out with was that this idea that outside of what extends into the world that we see in the in the living physical world that we live in is this greater menacing or at least like uncaring. Uh, horrifying universe that that only bare, barely extrudes into our world. So, in in that sense, the Hellraiser series almost like started with that revelation. Um, Revelations is one of the Hellraiser movies, isn't it? Am I wrong? Um, oh God, the ninth one, the worst, one. <laughs> the worst one by far, which is impressive. Well, don't to, don't you yeah. know? Rewatch it. Maybe it's yeah. great. <laughs> no, I'm pretty sure that was not going to age well. Uh, um, but the idea that there's a fully realized world that we can tap into through dreams or trans like broader mind opening things uh, that only extends into this world through these like narrow like characters or, or menacing creatures or anything like that is a pretty powerful idea in filmmaking and I think it's why the Hellraiser franchise started out on such a good foot because 
Clive Barker, I think, draws on his own like dream images and his own kind of sense of creeping dread in his life and things like that in a way that I, I think a lot of great um, directors can really leverage I think that the best thing you can do in horror, especially like quasi-supernatural horror or, or, you know, I'm saying like religious horror, I don't know if that's right, but... Um, metaphysical horror. Yeah, metaphysical horror. Versus like body horror. Is, is creating horror. a sense that there's, outside of our scope of experience, there's a, like an, an like a huge world and that a movie is never going to express that. It's only going to see how that world cuts through the cloth of our veil yeah. uh, and, and in what ways it extends into our world just gives you a tiny glimpse of the of the horrors beyond that. This is essentially what Lovecraft did when he was doing his best work. Is totally. Like, yeah, you know, painting, like not so much describing a, uh, a horror villain to you so much as describing a sense of uh, ineffable, uh, ungraspable existence beyond the ken of our, mm-hmm. our, our moral experience. Because that's the, the funny thing, like Cthulhu, for example, Cthulhu is described in fairly specific detail in a couple spots, which is why we have this image of this tentacle-faced monster mm. with wings and whatnot. And it's interesting, Cthulhu is one of his earlier inventions, and you look at this, his later work, and you get these much more amorphous descriptions of just horrifying existences, you know, the, mm. the, these very vaguely described notions of a... Un, uncomprehensible horror. So in, in a sense, Cthulhu is an early failure of Lovecraft, despite mm. the fact that he's become such an iconic face of it. Because like he's like, imagine a dragon with tentacles right. for a mouth, you know? Right. Whereas, like, you know, Yogg-Sothos is much, is much more just like this terrible thing. Shabnigarov right. is this terrible thing. Right, where no one can describe it because to look yeah. upon it is to know madness. And, yeah, no, I think it's... It, it, Hellraiser, it is funny, because Hellraiser started with that promise and then just really went downhill, whereas... Right, where, where, started where with Pinhead a just idea. becomes a, 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 a guy. Yeah. A he, fucked up guy who yeah. teleports in and, like, delivers and, lines. Yeah, he delivers, and like, teleports morality. Out, and it's he, never like, part of a grander... And even when they speak to the grander, you know... Undercurrent of our world is 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 just in these super basic terms of hell and eternal suffering and 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 they just completely they've kept the character but jettisoned all everything interesting about the universe that thrust that character into our world. And this is a really interesting thing in terms of like the contemporary state of Hellraiser because New Nightmare I would say is probably the best example of uh, within the world of cinema a horror icon creator reclaiming that and doing something interesting as we've discussed mm. you know the way Wes Craven sort of took back control of this mythos and then did something interesting with both the idea of Freddy Krueger and the idea of mm-hmm. you know his franchise I want to interject for a second and say when I rewatched New Nightmare it really didn't hold up as well as I thought but the premise is yeah. still fantastic I, 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 I think I it comes being, from a really good place I remember not being super impressed even when I watched it at the time and I really would like to rewatch it again because I think it's an interesting idea, but yeah, mm-hmm. I, I don't remember thinking it was super well done. And especially as it kind of falls into and trips back over itself into its own kind of dumb tropes of yeah, oh, I'm Freddy Krueger. Oh, it just it, it yeah, seems as soon extra as have, stupid. As soon as you have when to you, take when it Freddy gives you Krueger expectations seriously in, in a film, <laughs> basically deconstructing Freddy Krueger. Yeah, it's like, uh, uh, no, no one's gonna buy it now though. And they don't, they really don't swing for the fences even when they're trying to do that. Yeah. But anyway, but so in I'm any sorry. case. The, the idea is there. Like, like you said, there's yeah. promise to the idea of Wes Craven basically saying, hey, I have this iconic horror franchise. Let's play with the concept of the franchise. 
Uh, Wes Craven has lately been the uh, head writer, I guess, on uh, Boom Studios, I think is the comic publisher. Hmm. Um, A comic series that's basically the canonical next chapter of Hellraiser, where he takes Kirsty Cotton and Pinhead and basically writes a story about them and their various associates and about the mythos of the labyrinth, the actual interesting Mm -hmm. concept of hell as more of a perceived layer of existence rather than as literally a moralistic that's where you go when you're bad and you get right. punished thing. Right. Uh, and it's actually kind of cool. And, and I, I, I'm, I'm several it issues in It gets tricky there because more. part of it, part of what makes it really effective is that you it does seem unknowable and the more well, you kind yeah, of granted. show your cards there, the, the more disappointing I, it yeah. could inevitably be. But it could also be done well. And at least just reintroducing the existence of this alternate dimensions yeah. and... and, and and uh, concepts of pain and and pleasure. Well, yeah, the the, the like notion that. the notion that cenobites are literally sort of like you know radicalized uh, storm chasers, where in this case mm-hmm. the storm is not a meteorological system, but like the the nature of experience. Like they're mm-hmm. they're people who just wanted to chase down the very idea of the limits of experience. You know where. The whole idea is that pain and pleasure are both just sort of subcategories of the idea of experience, and mm. and they were the people who said mortal existence is too too short of a finish line for this limit of experience. Let's go as far as the universe can take us, and let's experience pain and pleasure to their utmost limits, and let's realize that they are really indivisible, essentially. And the idea of suffering is the same thing as ecstasy. And when you get out far enough. You know, it's all just one. It's one vector. It's all one crazy thing that we want to see if we can go another, go mm. another step, go another meter, go another mile on. You know, it's a really exciting sort of weird philosophical idea that then got wasted in the later films. Sure. And and uh, and then it sort of goes from there. And the films never really quite get there. Mm-hmm. They're always just sort of like, which on the one hand they make more mysterious protagonist or, or antagonists because they're like. You don't know what's going on with him, but on the other hand, there's no sense of a philosophy there that really emerges in the films, uh, which is a shame because it just collapses in on itself and it becomes a dumb sort of vaguely Judeo-Christian hell <laughs> morality play. Right. One last question, and then maybe we can button up a little Shoot. bit. There's a there for for whatever reason, and in, in just kind of like the conversations you have with every, like people around you about movies is is that one. One thing a lot of people really want to talk about is how a remake or a sequel can really cheapen or take all the fun out of an original. And I kind of am in two minds about that, because I think that, in one sense, there's nothing a sequel or a remake can do that actually affects the movie, the original movie that it's a sequel to or a remake of. But at the same time, there's so much imagination that you can bring to a movie that that a sequel or a remake can go and try and, and it hammers down um, in a way that it's hard to later divorce from your viewing of the original movie. You can't see me nodding, but I'm nodding. <laughs> All of these horror franchises, uh, you know, they, they they really, really are like wringing the towel dry with these these main villain characters. Sure. And even even in in uh, in something like Wes Craven's New Nightmare, where where it even takes a step back and says like, okay, well, so that was a character we did ring it dry. There's a broader kind of spectral horror behind that, though. 
even by the end of that movie, it's not like you really want to see a sequel that further extrapolates on that. You feel like, okay, I got it. Like, that idea is done and stuff. But a lot of times, I think that one... Maybe this wasn't original where I was going, but maybe this is a better place to go with it. One of the great things about horror movie is that there's nothing scarier than what you don't know. And, I mean, this is something that, like, everybody famously points to in Jaws, how rarely you actually see the shark. And in the first Alien movie, how rarely you actually see the alien. And, and it's only in later movies that you get these full-body shots and get a sense of its entire physiology. Yeah, sure. Um, and that, that's a huge part of why it's effective. I mean, this is, like, one of the most common go-to kind of movie points of, you know, discussion. With a horror movie, in, in so much of the effectiveness is that your mind is filling in so much of the blanks, and a sequel can only try and fill in more blanks, or, or completely divorce itself from the source material. Hellraiser is guilty of both <laughs> in, in various ways in different movies. But it kind of leaves the question of, do you is it ever useful or helpful to create sequels to horror movies, or is it always going to demean the original? I think it's a very complicated question, and it's a good question because it sort of cuts to the the heart of both the nature of the idea of a franchise and a mythos, but also the nature of experiencing this as a fan. And that's where I think it becomes complicated, is there's really there's two major answers, I would say. One is that I think it's possible to do significant irrevocable damage to the purity of a concept through subpar sequels, through misguided sequels or, or follow-on stuff, cash-ins, you know, however you want to look at it. Um, it's very, very possible to take a really interesting pure idea that stimulates a concept of horror and wonder in a viewer or a reader uh, and then take that and, and quash the potential there mm-hmm. through a poorly imagined sequel in particular, but even through a rel- relatively well imagined sequel you can you can take a sequel that gets explicit about things left implicit and it can do it in a stylish and interesting way and still it constrains the mm-hmm. uh, the, the the scope of that and I would say the Hellraiser franchise is a good example of doing that where there's not not every idea that shows up in the films is bad and especially in the first few films I think there's some good interesting elaborations that show up but they still sort of nail things down that were left very much hanging in the original film or in the original novella for that matter so there's there is there is an issue there where I feel like it can really it can get in the way of what a fan was otherwise imagining based on this really inspiring first taste of something. Mm. Um, but on the other hand, I feel like you have to look at that in terms of the naive fan versus sort of like the I don't want to say mature, but like the, the savvy the fan. savvy fan. Yeah, sure. savvy is a good word. Um, I think like for me, I love the Hellraiser franchise. Uh, like unironically it's got amazing problems and there's some terrible films but I love it as a collected work because I think it's really interesting to see how people have tried to cope with the idea of it even if they've coped with it in a very mercenary and sort of bullshitty way they're still reacting to an idea and they're trying to work with it and and at this point like you know I'm 34 years old I've consumed a ton of pop culture I've consumed a ton of horror media I've developed, you know, I, I've sort of lost my innocence on that front. It's hard to surprise me, per se. Mm. But at the same time, I've sort of gotten over that, you know, despair over the lack of surprise. Like, I've gotten through the period of realizing that, you know, there's only so much that I'm going to be shown at any time and it's going to be hard to surprise me. And I've accepted that. So at this point, I look at the Hellraiser franchise and, the, the, like, the films and the fan films and the comics 
And I look at these all as sort of attempts to interpret an idea. It's maybe, it's, maybe it's sort of a deconstructionist way to look at things, but I think Clive Barker had some really interesting ideas, and I think he executed some of them well, and some of them he didn't really execute super well, and then other people really ran off that. And I think it's really interesting to study it as a corpus. It's really interesting to say what happens when a bunch of different people with a bunch of different motivations engage the same idea. So I think as far as that goes, I have no problem. Like people can do the worst job adding <laughs> another chapter to the collaborative, collective Hellraiser franchise, and I'll be thrilled. There are fan films out there that I haven't watched yet that are going to be terrible <laughs> that I'm excited about because, like, you know what? I've paid way too much attention to this franchise in the first place. I want to see what other people are thinking about it. I want to see what other people say you know what, this is enough of an idea that even though I don't have the resources to do this, I'm going to do it anyway. Mm -hmm. You know, I love reading the comics. There's some great anthology comics mm. uh, that were published years ago. Uh, and this sort of goes back to the idea of centralizing an ongoing franchise around the iconic character versus around sort of the idea or the spirit of the franchise. Mm -hmm. There were some great Hellraiser comics that didn't have Pinhead in them anywhere, didn't have any Cenobites in them anywhere necessarily. They were just taking the the spirit of this sort of weird moral calculus that Clive Barker suggested and then ran with it as, as an aesthetic and told small stories about characters that weren't recurring, that you never heard from again, you know, and, and said, okay, well, what happens if this is sort of the, the rubric in which the sort of metaphysical universe exists? And they wrote great comics about it, and that, that stuff was good. And there's been comics that were about Pinhead that are kind of bad. There's mm. been comics that have been there's kind of good. And, you know, mm. it's like there's this whole spectrum of stuff. And everybody, this is kind of, I guess, an apology for fan fiction, is <laughs> I feel like at a certain point, once you get comfortable with the idea that a creative notion exists more or less independent of any interpretation of that, and that you don't have to blame flawed interpretations of it for tarnishing the image, then you can really say, okay, well... I will always have, you know, the 1987 film Hellraiser. I can always go back and watch it. I'll never be able to sanctify it in a way that I don't see any of the stuff related to it that I don't like, but I can be okay with that. I can say, you know what, I'm not, I'm never going to have that experience again. I'm never going to see it again for the first time, but I can always watch it again. I can always think about how I feel about it. And I think, I think there's something very liberating and something very empowering about getting over the idea of the sanctity of the thing you like. Hmm. And just embracing, you know, the things that you don't like so much as different perspectives, you know, or different approaches, you know, even deeply flawed, even cynical. But nonetheless, you know, there are people engaging in some way with something you have an interest in, and you can take some value from that, even if it's mostly in rejecting it, even if it's mostly in saying, you know what, that thing there is a, you know, creatively bankrupt attempt to cash in on this thing that I like. But that doesn't mean you have to, you know, feel like it stole something from you. It didn't. It just, it added something to your gestalt, your your overall experience of the thing. And I think that's really, I think that's really exciting and valuable when you can sort of like get over outrage about it and just say, hey, you know, this is, you know, humanity is a fucking, it's an ongoing collaboration. It's, it's, it's a group experiment in figuring this shit out. And people fuck up all the time. But you can be angry about how people fucked up something that you wouldn't have fucked up in their shoes, or you can say, hey, you know what, uh, this is interesting. That thing you fucked up, you fucked that up, and <laughs> that's kind of that's kind of neat. I see kind of what you were going for there when you did a shitty job. You know? and that's, 
it's very it's very freeing i think to just sort of embrace the the whole instead of just trying to cut out everything that you reject and say no it can't it doesn't count it, it doesn't matter it's like canon is kind of a bullshit thing to worry about i think it's that all thing that all makes sense to me and it's still hard for me to get over the frustration of enjoying something as a mystery and then having someone answer it in a way I don't like. Oh, absolutely. And then never really being able to consider it a mystery again. One of my very favorite things about the first Alien movie is that the space jockey was introduced really conspicuously and then never explained in any way. And that was, I mean, that the mere fact that that was done and handled in that way was responsible for huge, wonderful, and ex- incredibly rewarding flights of imagination for me at the time. And I think that when you bring a movie like Prometheus in that sets out and, and ex- so makes it real that. explicit, yeah. I hope I'm not spoiling anything, but it makes, you know, it, it basically... Well, I, I know that it does that, yeah. so that's so that, so So it, it gives a clear answer to that, and it tries to open new questions, and that's an interesting thing it attempts to do, but it, it makes it so... I can never go back and re-watch the first one and, let the, and, and, and relish that mystery in exactly the same way, because I know now there is an answer that I don't have to accept, but that I have to have in my mind when I'm yeah. reliving that first well, Absolutely. I mean, for, for all my high-minded, oh, well, it's nice to embrace the various fractional, you know, approaches to the franchise, I, I still, I totally, this is more of my way of coping with the inevitability of right. disappointment. And I think it's just because at the end of the day, that's my fucking problem. That's not their problem. You know, we're talking about Ridley Scott, and you know, he he has plenty more of a right than I do to 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 fill in that backstory, and and it's just it's, it's I mean, it's my problem that I that I'm frustrated by that, not his. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's it's, it's tricky because it's it's a nature of our the, the way we acquire and and categorize information. You know, our brains don't work in a purely partitioned way where we can literally say, oh, well, yes, but that's not canon, so that gets filed away, and I'll not think about that ever again. Yeah, mm-hmm. we can't do that. And it is it is frustrating, because, like, you want, you want to be really excited and really satisfied by every new piece of mm-hmm. information that you might come across, and you want it to synthesize well with your imaginings, and, and it's really hard to get that. It's really hard to be on the same wavelength as a creator, even when there's not bullshit that gets in the way. On the other hand, though, the Hellraiser franchise, they, you know, as as far afield as it gets, it's always when it brings in the the original not philosophy. What's the right word? When it when it in the ways that these later Hellraiser movies tap into the mythos of the original Hellraiser, they're just skirting the edges of it. They're not really trying. You know, they're not. Hellraiser 5 isn't a team of mercenaries infiltrate hell and kill the devil. Granted. You know what I mean? So I think that we can at least be grateful for that. Yeah, yeah. the the, the abiding theme of the later Hellraiser films is that Pinhead shows up to play some token role in the narrative. And he does so inconsistently. You know, he he performs as everything from sort of something relatively close, close to the sort of mercenary agent of the labyrinth that he is in the earlier films to something like essentially a Greek chorus, you know, announcing the moral failings of 
the uh, protagonists that lead to their downfall, which is kind of like the worst fucking use of Pinhead. Cause it's like, hey. But at the same time, it doesn't go in and literally like blow up the mythology that was yeah. set in, you, in the first movie. You can kind movies. of imagine, it, like any of those later movies, you can at least imagine the Pinhead is showing up basically to troll. Pinhead more is like an anthology right. series. Right, it's not going back and rewriting the canon in a in an especially offensive way, like midichlorians or whatever. <sighs> Mm-hmm. In a, I guess that's the best defense you can make of the later <laughs> heroes of films, is that they're in their lack of ambition, they did less harm to the central <laughs> premises of the franchise than uh, shitty films centered on iconic characters might otherwise have done. You want to do a scratch off lottery ticket with me? Oh God, yes! I got line him that's, up. That's that was your favorite. I've been last so time. polite, but this is the only reason I'm here. <laughs> You like lining them up because it's uh, commanding you to do something. Yes, it, 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 it's not just something. Else. It's not just a description. <laughs> it's an exhortation. Yes. All right. Let's spin one. We I got a pot of gold. Shit. We got a money bag. And we got a pot of gold. See, it's dumb because by the time you get to the second one, you already know you lost. Yeah, it's kind of shit. Right, we got it's three spins though. Okay, spin two. We got a gem. Do we have another gem? We do. Oh shit! What's the third thing? Is it a gem? No, it's a horseshoe. Oh, I'm sorry, it's an H shoe. Yes. Okay, spin three, last chance. We got a key. We got a gold. <laughs> See, it does no point. Yeah, no one cares. Out. No one cares. It's like, it's a clover. Who cares, clover? Fuck you. Fuck you, clover. Fuck you, clover. <laughs> well, if we've come away with any lessons about film, it's, it's the fuck, fuck you, you clover. clover. Yeah. Josh, it's been a real pleasure as always. Thanks for doing uh, this with me. Th- thank you so much for having me. Thank you for uh, tolerating my uh, my uh, prolixity. That's okay. I'll just cut it all out. Yeah, the audience that's, won't that's, have to. It's a good time. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you so much. You can't see it, but we're shaking hands. We're shaking hands. Yesterday at work, (laughs) this is a true story. Yesterday at work, um, a coworker showed up to take a certification exam Mm -hmm. at work and just kind of conversationally before he he said, um, if you're ever having a bummer day, like if you're having a bummer, Mm-hmm. Just remember that you're like the fastest swimmer out of out of everybody. Mm. And I was like, "What the? F- I'm not. What the fuck does that mean? <laughs> First of all, I'm not a very fast swimmer." And he's like, "No, I mean, think about like when you were conceived, how you beat all the other swimmers mm. to the finish line." And I was like, "Oh, okay. I guess I'll think about that." <laughs> Then he tried to take the test, and it it didn't work, like his code had expired, or there was some other technical problem. And, you know, he had spent weeks preparing for this test, and he was, like, now he was really bummed out all of a sudden. And so I was like, well, just imagine yourself swimming through your father's jizz. <laughs> didn't cheer him up. For reasons I don't understand. Uh, oh my. That's why my coworkers love me so much. Thanks for doing this by phone with me. That's I know this is an encumbrance on you, and it's kind of bad timing for you. 
but I appreciate you making making the effort. It's, that's awesome. That's that's it. I appreciate it. And I appreciate that it's probably awkward because you're just talking into a phone instead of like sitting down and talking into a microphone and whatever. Maybe it's less awkward. I don't know. Talking into a mic's pretty awkward. I've gotten used to it. Okay. <laughs> I almost feel like we, I haven't talked to you in long enough that it's like there's just like life stuff to catch up on. <laughs> I um my girlfriend uh, woke me up the other morning and said there's a guy in the living room. And it turned out there was a strange guy in the living room I had to get rid of, which was pretty exciting. Who had um, stumbled into my apartment drunk and passed out on my couch. Uh, so that that was a first. Um, it's the same experience with a raccoon. Yeah. Did you have to go and give the raccoon a lecture later? <laughs> I had to give the guy a lecture. I, I didn't know him personally. I figured out it was a. <laughs> I figured out it was one of my neighbors, and later in the day, I kind of just went and gave him a weird. Moralistic <laughs> lecture about I don't know. Ah, there's a cat on me. Um, <laughs> Where are you? Uh, at my mom's place. Hmm. I'm familiar with that place for completely non-sexual reasons. <laughs> Among others, <laughs> we used to have a one-legged uh, homeless man try and break into our house sometimes and just fall asleep on our stoop. Which house? The New Orleans house? Yeah, but I mean, I'm, glad I got a, I'm glad I got a terrible mispronunciation of New Orleans into this, <laughs> as, as I have onto every episode since our New Orleans episode. When we were living in a worse neighborhood. Mm. How are things with you? Um, Currently. Pretty good. Good. Um, uh, I, uh, my heart might <laughs> Tell me about that. We had to postpone by a day because you had to get heart medication. Um, I went to the um, doctor, and uh, my blood pressure was super, super high. And so he said that um, he would put me in the hospital if I had any health insurance. And I think he meant... He was going to kick your ass? He think he meant he was going to kick my ass. Right. Um... My my idea for the twentieth episode was not to talk about a movie, but to reach out to everybody who's been a, a co-host on the show and and let them pick a topic of their choosing, or or whatever, some vaguely defined notion or some kind of thesis or whatever. So um, okay, so you want to do a podcast? No, probably not. I don't. I mean, I guess that's what this episode's all about: is me taking a break. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, that's a good stopping point then. <laughs> I, I do want to do a podcast. It's it's um it's been a really interesting project, of course. And I'm you know you you know you've been there. We we you know we've we've spent who knows how many hours between the two of us we've spent just making this thing happen, and it's turned into one to the, one of the bigger creative undertakings of my life. Whether that was my intention or not, it's it's kind of become a kind of a big thing I, not not big in terms of like exposure or, or reach but big in terms of how much um how many hours you have to put it right the undertaking itself and and mm -hmm. and and to, you know that it, that it's kind of taken its own direction and and defined its own format and stuff like that in in ways that were sometimes surprising to me and and fun for the most part the thing about i mean the thing about doing everything for a podcast is that you know it's not boring it's just time consuming it's it's not it's not really it's not tedious it's just like exhausting mm -hmm. yeah, i think most people who do podcasts just don't put in the ridiculous amount of work that you do well, the, <laughs> it was 
the, the, I mean, the funny thing is that it doesn't end up being like that much better, really. It's just I feel like it starts so bad that I just have to do everything I can to at least make it listenable. Yeah, I can't even like I don't know if I can think of a podcast that I listen to that's even edited. Right, but those—I mean, those people are good at podcasting. That's the difference between them and us: is that they have any business in front of a microphone, where we sort of don't. We just—we have to use trickery, right? Sweet. <laughs> um, well, you want to talk about something now? We've talked about a lot. When I was thinking about what to talk with you about, it was hard for me not to jump back to so many kind of different, interesting things we've stumbled across in older episodes that you and I have done. Yeah, definitely. Because we've really, I think. I mean, my favorite part of this project is stumbling across something that neither of us had as a as a existing idea or opinion that we came into the conversation with, but that had kind of grown out like uh, via Socratic method, grown out of the conversation. Mm-hmm. Did you were you thinking about uh, when you were thinking about what to talk about? Was it something from drawing from an earlier conversation we've had, or what? Did um, you... Well, the only thing I, I think I actually didn't really do very good thinking. <laughs> But uh, when I called you up, I, I guess the idea I had settled on was, um, I think I mentioned several times that I'm angry at the Batman. Oh, yeah. And then I never quite actually really thought about that or anything, but um, um, unpacking why I'm angry at the Batman might be a... Uh, might be a thing. Sure. Is that is that where you want to go? Um, yeah, unless you have uh, better ideas. No, I, w- I wanted I wanted you to pick. All right. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a couple of uh, you know movies I wanted to do that we never got to. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I didn't you know watch them or anything. <laughs> so yeah, the Batman. Fuck that guy. Batman has to be the most beloved superhero in America for right. many years the, running at this point. The other thing is, you know, of course I also, you know, love Batman. It's Batman. <laughs> you, right. know? you know, I totally grew up on the, you know, Tim Burton and the, the amazing animated series. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if I can really, it's, it's strong to say that I hate the Batman, but, but I'm mad. I'm mad at him. We have some feelings. Sure. <laughs> we have some issues. Do you think there is a central Batman that's that's a through line through every incarnation that we've seen in our lifetimes, from the Adam West Batman through the uh, Michael Keaton Batman, the animated series Batman, the well, Christian Bale? I, is that? Do you think that there's an under like there's a fundamental problem I, with the character I, I, that that shines through all I, those that you have a problem I, with, or is yeah, it more? I'm, I'm, I don't know if there's a fundamental problem. I, I mean, I do think there is a fundamental character. Um, but, I mean, I think, you know, really, really my issues are probably, or, you know, the way I think of the whole character is now strongly shaped by, you know, the Frank Miller Batman and the Christopher Nolan Batman. Right. But I, but I think, you know, that the things, the issues I have were developed from the existing character. And we, cause I do... I do not like uh, Christopher Nolan or Frank Miller very much, which you may have mentioned on the show. <laughs> um, although we never did do a Nolan movie. Because, um, yeah, I mean, he's a very, I would say a, really, a pretty great director. Also, the Batman video games, those really made me hate Batman a little extra. Hmm. Which ones? Uh, the Batman goes to jail and punches men. The Arkham Asylum games? Mm-hmm. I really like a lot of things in that game. 
So boy, it sure is just Batman going to jail and punching a bunch of kids in the paw. Because <laughs> of how much they deserved it, because they're in jail. <laughs> Which is, I mean, I guess when it gets to my issues with the politics of Batman, there sure is a lot of, oh, let's go beat up the poor. Hmm. Batman is a superhero that no interpretation can make Batman a poor guy because so much of his cachet is the endless source of gadgets and vehicles and, you know, mansion and butler and all that stuff, which are all, you know, there, there's no such thing as a poor bat interpretation of Batman out of the right. dozens and, and um, dozens of interpretations of the character. And what's really core to Batman is his endless thirst for vengeance against a class of people. It kind of is that, isn't mm -hmm. it? Pretty much, you know, every other superhero pretty much just fights supervillains, or at hmm. least involves with their plot. And, you know, every Batman story just starts with Batman going and kicking the shit out of some right. guys because they're doing crimes. And, of course, you know, I mean, it's always presented as, you know, it's never presented as a, you know, wants to go uh, beat dudes up because he's angry about his mom. He's always uh, forced into it. You know, he, he is always presented as as the as a good guy and the, you know by, of course he doesn't actually want to do violence and he is but you know there's never an, a batman story where he doesn't just kick the shit out of all the guys hmm. I mean, it, and that's just a uh, trope that just annoys the shit out of me is uh you know the kind of revenge porn with that very moral central character who is hmm. just uh, he's just forced into having to act out the violence that we as the audience want to see and that of course he is a character you know is is absolutely central to his characters but going out and you know the idea of vengeance i mean i don't know how many times they use the word vengeance in uh, <laughs> uh christopher nolan batman movie but he, he definitely is the superhero who embodies vengeance rather than justice no matter how many times they also say justice right <laughs> you know i mean the fucking jail he takes people to is a, you know, terrible hell <laughs> after he beats the shit out of them. Right. It's, you get the, you get the, the, the itch that's scratched by Batman solving crimes isn't the justice itch. It's the, <laughs> it's the vengeance for sure. I, I rented, uh, after, after like probably a year of hearing about how amazing and groundbreaking it was, I rented God of War two for the PlayStation two. <laughs> And I played it, and it just found it so just gross. It just felt really, really gross. <laughs> and and because and it's like you know, it's obviously you're just like ripping, eviscerating the, your enemies and tearing them apart, and r just brutal rage, such awesome power you hold in your twin blade thing. <laughs> But then, and I mean, but it's just like, it just, just continues to just twist the thumbscrews on that. And in a way that like, and I tried to bring this up to, a, to our mutual friend and he was like, you know, what'd you think? What'd you think? And I, and I was like, it, 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 the mechanics of the game work really well, but it's just like, I just can't, I don't have fun being driven by that sort of like, just hulking out on the universe just cruelty for the fun of cruelty. And he's, he, he's like, Oh, you didn't play the first one. And I was like, no, I didn't play the first one. <laughs> you don't, you don't know that he's supposed to be mad. It totally makes it make sense. He's got a reason to be mad. His wife got killed like right <laughs> in front of him. That's what that whole, the whole fucking trope of, you know, I mean, hey, it's a whole other thing how it's, you know, always the, you know, 
that's you know the a woman's main place in video games and maybe a little less so in movies than in the past, but still pretty much in movies is you know the the fucking murdered wife. Right, right. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, like God of War or whatever. I mean, I never really played those, but that kind of thing where it's just pure, just purely that doesn't bother me nearly as much as in in the case where they try and make it seem like it's something else. Well, he, I mean, he does like feel sometimes feel pain and have like these quasi reflective moments. But <laughs> but I mean, what's what's insidious about Batman is that he's just this real like righteous. Uh, right. Yeah. No one is. It's no. It's not. He. He's pretending it's not gleeful revenge porn. Right. Oh yeah. He, it's always his last resort. You know. It's always written as he feels so bad if he ever kills a guy. Like you know, fucking after punching thirty guys off a building, <laughs> a guy who matters in the plot. Like it's, even that he doesn't in the new ones. And this is something that really bothered me about Batman Begins was the end of the Burton Batman, which is a movie with plenty of fucking flaws. Do not get me wrong on that one. But the 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 Burton Batman ends the fight against the Joker after this long drag like drawn out life or death struggle. Joker goes off the edge of the building and Batman dives to the edge of the building to grab him and save him and grabs him by the hand. And in in the age I was when I saw that moment, it was really, really... I'd never seen a character in a movie do something like that. Where he's fighting and fighting and fighting and trying to overcome this guy, but then the moment comes where that guy's about to die, and he dives to save him. <laughs> There's a moment at the end of Batman Begins where... Um, I always want to call him Raul Julia, but that's a different person. <laughs> Raza Ghoul. Raza Ghoul is... Uh, the, the whatever the cable car that they're on or what it's sorry the monorail the the vehicle they're on is is about is plunging off of the shattered track that it's plunging off of and batman like says you know i'm not gonna kill you but i'm not gonna save you either i don't remember his exact words but it was really like that over the what he, thing mm-hmm. he was saying and it was such an obvious contrast. Like, I, th- I think it has to have been a deliberate counterpoint to the Burton Batman because the decision the Burton Batman makes at the end of the first Burton Batman is just literally the exact opposite of that. Mm-hmm. Where he says, I do have to save you. You know, there's a there's a sense of justice that I have to uphold here. I, I'm not your executioner. I'm, I'm bringing you to justice. And I, and I think in the writing, I mean, the first is almost worse than... That kind of writing where, it's, you know, he he never wants to, but he still gets to. Right. He, he never really wants to fuck guys up. It's just just how it plays out. And then, and then definitely in the Nolan ones, it's also like he never wants to, you know, do whatever sort of weird uh, political callback to something from the year before the movie came out that where Batman gets a little fascist, but he just has to be a little fascist because there's just no other option. Do you think the difference is that, uh, because I, I mean, I really remember the lead up to the Nolan Batmans. It's everyone's excitement was like, this is going to be the real Batman. This is going to be the gritty Batman. This is gritty is the, just the the term of the decade that just, it's so worth. So thin. I mean, and then it's the fucking, Batman for adults. 
Yeah. That's the other thing is fucking, I mean, that's I mean, one thing is Batman shouldn't be for adults <laughs> or Batman shouldn't exclude kids. You know, right. you shouldn't fucking make a Batman movie that is not for 10 year olds because I don't know. I mean, I don't know if there's really comic, you know, superhero movies I really like. But the ones I like the most are definitely the ones where it's just like, hey, this should be fun. Hmm. You know, there's not, I mean, every time that fucking Batman wants to be anything other than fun, it's just dumb as hell. (laughs) The fucking bullshit pop psychology that's in every fucking line, the fucking, I mean, the Nolan ones, the, you know, every movie had this political commentary that was, when you pick it apart, actually entirely devoid of any political commentary. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it's like, this one's about, you know, I guess the last one was like, look, it's like uh, Occupy Wall Street stuff going on. We're referencing we're referencing this political thing because we're deep. Right, and then the NSA thing and the previous the one. Political and message, the... and that's like, wait a second, there's no actual, you're actually having a message. You're just having a neutral, here is a thing in the world right now that, you know, that you're not actually deconstructing or looking at or you're just you're just throwing it in there right one thing is that i think there is room in the world for an interesting you know emotionally damaged and broken not by any means necessary but by his own code type of hero and i and i think that that the the way that the America has really embraced Batman lately is just in in response to a perceived whether it's there or not, just kind of like oversimplification of heroes. And that we we I think there is a craving for a hero who has to make tougher decisions and who brings his own emotional baggage to it. And I I think that there is room for that type of hero and in in in, in fiction and. I don't know. That's the Batman we want. Maybe it's not the Batman we deserve, but it's the Batman that we want. <laughs> right. And it's also, I mean, I can't help but, I mean, certainly in, you know, pop culture and in, you know, our voting record and fucking everything, you know, I mean, definitely, in, you know, America, I would say probably always, but, you know, we're pretty, we're more interested in vengeance than justice. That would be an interesting thing to examine, but, uh, I don't know. I think Batman does the one and calls it the other. And, uh, you know, Batman is 5% of why we'll never get prison reform. Hmm. (laughs) And uh, I don't necessarily believe that. But uh, that attitude of the criminal class that just needs punishing. Right. Uh, You you have to put them in jail, but then you have to keep them in jail. Mm -hmm. And you have to make sure that jail is, you know, jail can't be at, you know, it has to be bad no right no one in the batman universe ever gets out of jail they escape jail and have to be put back into jail yeah i mean criminal is definitely a permanent state for a class of people you know it's not something you do it's who you are right yeah exactly uh, how does batman change humanity for the better by his presence in gotham city like i guess he can he he well he saves the victim since there's fantasy people whose only goal is to shoot and take pearls from rich women that he runs across and Batman puts that guy permanently in jail. For the most part, it's that there is a criminal class 
and that's just who they are and that they need to be have their asses kicked because some people just need a good ass kicking. And that's, you know, that's what Batman does is he, uh, takes care of that for us yeah and 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 that the police are constrained by these stupid laws that protect the criminals right. and batman gets to operate outside of those laws and get to get what needs to be done done you know on his own terms mm-hmm. yeah it's a pretty gross fantasy when you when you look at it through that lens for sure What what is it? Assuming assuming I'm right, and there is room in the world and interest in the world for a superhero that that is an adult, like literally for yeah, adults. There's room for that story, but you gotta someone you gotta write it well. Right. Yeah, I mean, you gotta let go of all the revenge fantasy elements if you're gonna actually tell the story. And I don't, you know, I don't have anything against good revenge porn. I mean, I love, you know, Tarantino's trilogy or Kill Bill and Glorious Bastards, uh, Django, and uh, I would uh, throw Death Proof in there. But, hmm. but yeah, I mean, the great thing about those movies, and those are, I mean, Kill Bill is totally a superhero story. And what makes it work and be fun is that they are not characters that are presented at all as moral. You know, they're pretty much, all of the heroes of those stories are totally amoral people who are, you know, we want them to win because we, because it is just, you know, straight up revenge fantasy. And, you know, I think it's, I mean, obviously a real strong, you know, Japanese influence on Hmm. a Kurosawa movie, you know, and the guy the hero is fighting is not necessarily, you know, it doesn't come down to white hat, black hat. It's just setting up the reason to fight and they're setting up the stakes and then they're, they're doing the thing. So what would a Quentin Tarantino Batman movie look like? Any good, do you think? I mean, Kill Bill is Quentin Tarantino's Batman. She did sort of have a costume. <laughs> oh, she, I mean, she really had a lot of those. She had a costume and her pussy wagon. Right. Um, arch villain with minions. And, right. And, but, yeah, I mean, and she had that same all-consuming desire for vengeance that is the core of Batman, but uh, they just never pretended it was something else. Hmm. Aaron, it's been a real pleasure doing this with you. I really appreciate your time, and it's it's meant a lot to me that you were willing to to get in and hunker down on this project with me. And I'm looking forward yeah, to coming back to it with you. Become a lot of fun. Well, that's good. Started out as kind of a nightmare, and then <laughs> yeah, <laughs> now it's fun. Oh well, that's good to hear that it's fun. I didn't realize that you felt found it fun at this point. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was definitely. Well, great. Yeah. Yeah, it's been good. All right. Bye. Fuck. Hello. We're not home. Sorry we missed you. Please leave us a message and we'll get back to you soon. Thanks. Bye-bye. Aaron, it's 1130 at night and I got your mom's voicemail. I'm going to call back again. Hi, I just left your mom a voicemail. Oh, Aaron, How's she done? What's up? <laughs> we didn't scratch off our scratch-off lottery ticket. Oh, my God. Hey.
Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Delicious things to eat. The popcorn can't be beat. The sparkling drinks are just dandy. The chocolate bars and the candy. So let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat.